Hello and welcome back to Ethically Sourced. I'm Stephen, your host. Today we're going to be talking about informed consent. It's a topic that comes up frequently as this process is performed multiple times per day in hospitals across the country, across the world even. Informed consent is incredibly relevant in the operating rooms, in the clinic spaces, and now as we are distributing and administering doses of the COVID-19 vaccines, informed consent uh, does go hand in hand with receiving this vaccination. Today we'll look into the history of informed consent and kind of what constitutes a thorough and appropriate informed consent. So an informed consent is an exchange of information about a diagnosis and treatment with a physician's recommendations and a patient's understanding and deliberate acceptance. Informed consent is a process of shared decision-making. When you talk to the patient, this is the disease process that you have. These are the treatment options. These are the recommendations I have as your physician. And what questions do you have for me? You have a back and forth conversation with that patient. And once they demonstrate that they understand what's going on and their options, they indicate a preference. Informed consent is a discussion or an exchange of information with an acceptance or rejection of recommendations. What it is not. An informed consent is not simply a signature. It's not a form or a document that has to make it to the chart somehow. Informed consent does not protect you from being sued. Remember, for a malpractice suit, you need uh, four things. Existence of a legal duty, so you're legally responsible to take care of his patient. A breach of that duty, so you did something that broke that responsibility. Uh, Connection between the breach of duty and the injury the patient sustains. And then a measurable harm from the injury. So those four things need to be present for a... Um, malpractice claim. So informed consent does not really protect you from that. To obtain an informed consent, you have to disclose the relevant information. You have to obtain or assess the competence and or capacity of that decision maker. And you have to elicit a voluntary decision, not under duress. When it comes to disclosure of information, there's a couple of different standards that have progressed over time. There is a reasonable physician standard. So what would you or a colleague down the street uh, discuss with a patient prior to inducing general anesthesia? If your coworker would say the same thing, then you should probably mention it too. The other alternative is a reasonable patient standard. So what would a reasonable patient want to know? What does a typical patient want to know about having their appendix taken out or having surgery? If it's a commonly asked question, then you should probably bring this up during your informed consent process. The third iteration of disclosure and what we should all strive for is this shared decision-making model, where in communicating and talking with the patient, you understand a little bit more about their goals and their concerns, and you can address those concerns within your consent process while still incorporating, you know, what a reasonable physician would disclose as well as what a reasonable patient would want to know. But that shared decision-making takes a little bit more, takes away from the paternalism, it puts more power back in the patient's hands, and you are able to really delve into that physician-patient relationship and get the patient the uh, appropriate disclosures and uh, information that they need to make that informed decision. When it comes to obtaining informed consent, a couple of the other terminology that 
sticks out capacity versus competence. These terms come up, sometimes they're used interchangeably, that's not quite right. So when it comes to capacity, that is the patient's ability to consent or refuse care, assuming they understand the relevant information, they appreciate the medical situation and the possible consequences of accepting or refusing the indicated th therapies. Patients able to communicate a choice and engage in rational discussion about their values and relationships to the recommendations and the treatment options. So it's a, it's a mouthful, but the patient kind of needs to understand what's going on and be able to have that conversation about their current medical condition. Capacity can be compromised by different medical processes such as illness, anxiety, pain. One thing I encounter not infrequently on labor and delivery, patients come in, usually I try to see them at the beginning of their laboring process as soon as they're done uh, with intake with a nurse because then I can see them before the pain hopefully has gotten too great and they're able to actually listen to the risk and benefits of receiving an epidural for their labor analgesia or labor pain control. Occasionally, you know, I, I do place an epidural or a spinal in, in a patient who is in 10 out of 10 pain, but in the back of my head, you know, do they really have uh, capacity because they are in intense pain right now? When patients come in in extremis, emergencies, car accidents, um, gunshot wounds, they likely don't have capacity due to their illness. This uh, term capacity is, it could be assessed by a simple conversation with their physician or healthcare provider to kind of determine, you know, what's going on. Are they making reasonable conversation? Do they understand what's going on, why they're here in the hospital? Oftentimes we are biased as physicians and healthcare workers because we don't really jump to a patient or consider a patient to not have or to, to lack capacity until they disagree with the treatment process or, or indicated procedure that we are trying to consent them for. So it's a little bit of bias, you know, as long as they're going along with what our plan is and, and we're fine with that. But the second that they refuse chemotherapy for their stage four lung cancer, we, we start to wonder, oh, do they have capacity? And it's, you know, really the key to that is understanding their wishes, their desires, their understanding of their medical process and what they want. So that shared decision-making model really comes into play here. Opposed to capacity, there is uh, competence. So competence is really more so a legal terminology, and it means to have the legal authority to affect certain personal choices. So this can be from healthcare decisions, finances, um, you know, day-to-day -day living um, decisions and choices that you have to make. And competence is determined by a judge who can then issue a court order or even appoint a guardian. Again, so capacity is determined by the medical team and then competence is more so just determined by a judge in the court system. Some things that come up uh, not infrequently, right, is the informed consent or, or decision-making process in patients that are mentally incapacitated. Your trauma patients, your patients in extreme pain, septic, sick, unable to make their own medical decisions. So what do we do for these patients? A couple of things to consider when you're faced with this uh, decision. Number one, you know, we, we tend to lean towards the side of altruism and assume that patients, you know, want to be saved and to get better. Um, and that's kind of what wins out nine times out of 10. If there's time to receive any type of uh, consent from somebody, you know, who do you go to? So. 
you want to look and talk with the family members and find out who is who and who you need to be speaking with and communicating with. From the family members, you know, ask, was there a prior preference expressed? Did they want to be intubated and have a full code if they um, went to cardiac arrest, etc.? Ideally, with these patients, you know, you want to have some sort of advanced planning when you see patients in clinic or in the hospital. I know in residency, a lot of times I always tried to determine, you know, what their end of life wishes would be or what their goals of care would be, what they prioritized. And if you could put that in the notes, that could be helpful or at least generate this conversation so they can have that conversation with family members. And then they would kind of have an idea of what the patient would like. There's other forms that are a little more permanent. So the durable or the medical power of attorney for healthcare is a form that they can fill out and have a designated decision maker, also called a, a surrogate decision maker. And they're available to enact that patient's wishes if they were unable to make their own medical decisions. It is important to know that these surrogate decision makers actually practice what is uh, called a substituted judgment. So you're not just willy-nilly making your own decisions as you see fit, you should be thinking about what does the patient want and what did we discuss beforehand and enact that patient's wishes. Other documents you can have is, uh, I guess, a directive to physicians. This is a legal document that is state-dependent, may not be available in all the states. And then there's a living will, which is a less formal documentation. It's as simple as uh, writing a paragraph and texting it to your family or friends or talking about it over Thanksgiving dinner that this is what I would like um, if I was in this situation, I want a breathing tube and medications and, and the full Monty, or I don't want to live life like this. And that living will, you know, when your family members and friends are able to be contacted, they can provide that information to help uh, impact your care were you not able to contribute. Also, there's the post order or the physician orders for life-sustaining treatment. As we approach um, or look at the distribution of these COVID-19 vaccines, um, you know, informed consent definitely comes into play. The questions are, are going around on social media in the uh, rooms on Clubhouse. Is it okay? Is it safe to receive this vaccination? Um, what risks should I be aware of? What side effects will I be exposed to or might I possibly have? Should I get this when I'm pregnant? And there's just a lot of conversations going on about that. You know, how does the uh, vaccine work? How effective is the vaccine? And, you know, there's a lot of things that we don't know, but it is important to move forward as we talk with our patients or as you talk with your physician or, or healthcare provider that you can receive informed consent and you can provide informed consent for your patients when they're asking you about this COVID vaccine specifically. So when it comes to the uh, COVID-19 vaccine, you know, there's, there's a lot of resources on the CDC website um, that can help you as a physician or even as a patient, whether you want to understand and explain these COVID-19 vaccines, you can kind of break it down in layman's terms. If you want to go deeper, there are the journal articles that are out there and, that, and, they re and the research is available if you want to get into it that way. Um, key points to know about the COVID-19 vaccines is that like all vaccines, um, this COVID-19 vaccine has been rigorously tested for safety before being authorized for use in the States. Although the technology is new, this uh, mRNA technology is not unknown. It's been studied for over 10 years, over a decade. Um, and the vaccine, at least the mRNA vaccines, don't contain any live virus. They don't cause, carry any risk of causing 
the disease in a vaccinated person, the SARS-CoV-2 in a vaccinated person. Um, mRNA from the vaccine never actually enters your own cells, um, the very heart of your own cells, and it doesn't affect or interact with uh, your DNA. Um, but it's a little bit of information, and this is straight off of the cdc.gov website where it has a lot of information about the vaccine. So you're able to take this information because you have to disclose what you know. And during that process of informed consent, remember, we were providing information about the diagnosis and the treatment. And what are we trying to prevent? We're trying to prevent um, a severe SARS-CoV-2, which is the disease caused by the COVID-19 virus. That is the goal. So that is what you're able to discuss with your patients. This is what we're trying to prevent. We can go over the data for how well these vaccines work. You want to talk about the risk of side effects or complications. Right now, technically, these uh, vaccines are not approved or licensed by the Food and Drug Administration. They are available under this emergency use authorization. We do have some unpredictable side effects or complications. We don't know everything there is to know about these vaccines. But with what we know, the benefits do outweigh the risk uh, when receiving this vaccine. Uh, one of the more common questions that will come up is, will this shot hurt and can it cause you to be sick? You know, some of the more common side effects, you know, they're, they're typically mild, some arm soreness, some fatigue, usually these, um, maybe some headaches. Usually these symptoms resolve within a week. Some people, yeah, m most of the symptoms resolve within a week. And then the question again about the unknown serious or long-term side effects. Um, how do we know this is safe? You know, the Food and Drug Administration and Center for Disease Controls are continuing to monitor safety to make sure that they can even identify the long-term side effects. So some people have probably received the vaccine at least nine months ago at this point in time. This is towards the end of January. So that's probably how long we've been able to observe for side effects. And that's all the information that they really have up to this point in time. But they're continuing to monitor that initial cohort of patients that received the vaccine. You know, talking to your patients, you can go ahead and answer the questions that you're, you're that they have. You know, I've, I've got a couple questions from friends that are just like, oh, I'm nervous. I think the most common thing that I've received questions about is, well, this just seems like a really new vaccine. How do I know it's safe? And, you know, I tell them it's been researched for 10 years and, and that's, you know, usually okay. But I, I stress time and time again that for patients, you know, it's okay to take your time to talk with your physician, healthcare pro professional, and really ask these questions, go through that informed consent process. Depending on where you get your vaccine from, there may or may not be an infectious disease doctor. Um, there may be a nurse there, there may just be a technician providing the vaccine. Oftentimes the informed consent is actually going to be on a, on a piece of paper. I know when I got the vaccine, I received a piece of paper. I could check a box if I wanted to talk with a physician or a provider about side effects or any questions about the uh, the vaccine, if I had questions. They did have some information there that I could read about as well. So that was the informed process. And then of course I signed my name and consented to receive the vaccine. So it wasn't the conversation that I mentioned earlier, but that conversation is available and can be had should you need that extra bit of assurance or should you have any questions that need to be answered. Once you uh, receive the vaccine, you know, they want to monitor you for 15 minutes, make sure you don't have any adverse reactions. And 
depending on where you receive the vaccine, you know, some states they actually have you sign a waiver. It may be in the paperwork that you sign that the uh, Department of Health or the CDC may actually kind of monitor your monitor you. Your name may go into a database for who has or has not received the immunization. So it's something to to know that you know you that the CDC or, or your state or local Department of Health may be keeping tabs on you, whether it's just to find out who all received the vaccine or if it'll be used later on to really identify and drill down um, the names of folks that have received the vaccine. But that could be implemented on some of the consent forms that are out there, just something to be cognizant of. So you are, since you were, so, so that you receive full disclosure and know exactly what you're signing. Hopefully this conversation was helpful. You know, informed consent is just something that occurs so often and it's, it can be done very well. It can be done very poorly. I still remember, I think I was a medical student and I got sent down to consent a patient on vascular surgery for like a, a, a pretty large vascular surgical case. And I had no idea what the surgery even was. And thinking back, you know, I was so far outside my wheelhouse that it wasn't really appropriate. And, you know, I wondered, was I really providing the standard of care, I wasn't, you know. So what can you do if you're a resident or, or medical student and you are sent to consent the patient, you know, speak up if you don't feel comfortable doing so. Um, otherwise, the internet is available. You can look up common side effects, complications, risks, benefits, and be able to educate yourself so you can then have that conversation with the patient and always be ready to refer to a, a higher level if they ask questions that are above your understanding. Uh, remember that consent is not merely obtaining a signature on a piece of paper. That does not prove that informed consent took place. That, that really just proves that you're able to obtain their signature on your piece of paper. So it's something to consider, something to keep in mind. You know, go out and we'll continue to provide the, uh, the best patient care we possibly can in the most ethical way possible. So that's the end of this episode of Ethically Sourced. Thanks for tuning in. Next week, I'll come back with another topic in the field of medical ethics. Thanks for listening.